This is Joel Kotkin. And this is Marshall Toplansky. And you're listening to the Feudal Future Podcast. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Feudal Future Podcast. I'm Marshall Toplansky. I'm Joel Kotkin. And today we are going to be talking about affordable housing with two experts in the area. Jill Stewart, who is former managing editor of LA Weekly and now a consultant on environmental issues, and Steve Pontel, who's chief executive officer of National Core, uh, a major builder in the area of affordable housing. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I guess, you know, maybe, you know, although um, both of you are in California and California seems to be the epicenter, this is a national phenomena as prices begin to uh, both rents and um, housing prices become higher and higher in other parts of the country, particularly post-pandemic. Um, basically, it seems to me the, that um, the problem we have is we have a higher, particularly here in California, particularly here in Southern California, we have high prices and low wages. Um, and so given that reality, uh, Steve, what can we possibly do to provide decent housing to you know, working class people who are working really hard, keeping the economy going, but they can't afford to, a decent place to live. So what do you think we can do? Great question. And thank you for the opportunity to talk about this. The, you know, the, <laughs> my most optimistic note is the fact that there are no external circumstances that got us into this situation. We got ourselves into this situation. Therefore, we have the theoretical possibility of getting ourselves out of this situation because it's all based on the policies that we enact. So at the end of the day, you know, I think that should give us hope. Um, so it's not a, actually a complicated issue, but it's a really hard issue because obviously the policies, the policies are tied to the politics. So just a couple of things is number one, we've got to bend the cost of producing housing. Right now, the cost of producing housing is absolutely ridiculous. And this is just basic math. We know how much it costs. We know how much money people make. We know what the gap is. And so this is not complicated to understand. We just need to figure out how to, how to make it happen. And when you think about it, there's a couple of distortions to the market that are significant contributors to the current challenge. Number one is housing is used as a proxy for building lots of non-housing infrastructure. And so one of the questions we need to answer is what's the purpose of a house? Is the purpose of a house to provide shelter? Or is the purpose of a house to build roads, water, sewer, storm water, parks, pay for schools, et cetera, et cetera? Because if you take a look at the majority of the cost that goes into the production of housing, it's not actually the cost of producing the house. And so, but what's happened is because of California's, using California is the example, but this is true other places as well, because of how local government is financed, because of how various infrastructure is paid for, you know, it just distorts what's happening within housing. And that's something that we have to really think about and understand. Uh, the, the other big challenge we have is to be really honest and thoughtful about, you know, where political power lies. Those people that have housing have a lot more political power than those people that don't have housing. And so at the end of the day, the forces to protect and preserve what is are significantly greater than the forces that are driving for the future. And so getting a real honest understanding, we used to be community builders. We used to be thoughtful and care about where are our children and grandchildren are going to live and how are they going to make that work? There's an ethic that has been lost in that conversation 
And as a baby boomer, I can say the baby boomer generation is the most selfish generation in the history of America, because all we've ever cared about is ourselves. And we kick the bucket down the road in a whole bunch of different ways. And then the final thing I'll say is we have a real opportunity to think about monetizing the benefits of housing. Uh, there are huge benefits associated with housing and health in education, in the economy and workforce, the ability to attract and retain employees. And so just thinking about who are all the constituents that are vested in a successful housing strategy and how do we make sure they're at the table advocating for housing? When we talk about housing, it's wah, 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 because we're housers. But if you get health, education, employers and the faith communities advocating for housing and communities, it's amazing how much that changes the politics in the equation. I mean, I can go on and on, but really it's how do we get the distortions in the market out of it in order to be able to produce housing at a price point that people can afford? Jill? Thank you. That that was great. Uh, great summary. Um, but I don't 100% agree. I want to talk a little bit about how loose money is these days and how it drove up the cost of buying a house because money is just... Uh, the, the low interest rates you see everywhere around the nation now, the housing prices go up no matter what the local uh, policies may be because you have such so much money washing around in the system. And of course, it, when you got all that money, easy money, everybody's bidding each other out of the house that's for sale. And it's, it's not just California. It's not just New York. It's all over the I've looked at the states. It's incredible. But I think maybe, and this is purely theoretical, that what that that something else was happening at the same time. And that was that more and more people just realized they could stay at home and do Zoom like we're doing right now. And that also has affected the desire, obviously, of people to want to um, have a maybe a bigger place or a place further away from work. So you have all these people um, kind of fighting for the same houses when they go up for sale. And I, I see this everywhere in the Midwest. It's, it's incredible how it's spread everywhere that everybody wants a house. And then, of course, you've got the big – I talked to uh, one of the Wall Street Journal reporters, Ryan December. What a, what a journalist. Um, and he writes about how the big corporations and the large entities are buying up single-family homes. And he's, he's really, I think, one of the world's experts on this now. And he gets into that pretty deep. And I think that's another problem. It's not illegal. Uh, large corporations can buy up as many single-family homes as they want to. So they're in the game, too, and you're bidding against them. So that's on the buying side, the buying of home side. It's crazy. Um, on the rental side, I think there's a whole different problem. Um, and I would say that what we have is most, many, not all, but most state legislatures, including California, have moved away from any kind of subsidies for the poor and for, uh, for, for housing for the poor. It used to be a big chunk of money in California up till 2011. Uh, they stopped funding affordable housing because of the crash. There was the housing crash and, and the legislature in California and many legislatures, it, they, everybody was broke. And so those who did, did have really, really powerful uh, ways of trying to build subsidized housing for um, working class people, uh, a lot of it was abandoned. California just walked away from it. And so now they do it every now and then. It's extremely rare for them to have a bill in California. In fact, I looked at the last 67 housing bills approved by the legislature in California, most of which 
uh, attack the CEQA law, um, go after the local cities for not moving fast enough, um, upzone the zoning of the local people, force the local people to report to the state on how many housing units they've applied. It's just endless. 67 of these bills, two of them fund affordable housing on a very moderate level. And so they've they've abandoned it. And I think that it, until that turns around, I don't see any way to, to build actual affordable housing. Well, let me just ask you a question about the subsidy issue. Is it just too big of a problem to solve? Is the subsidy money that would be required so large that it would be outside of the capability of a state to be able to actually provide adequate uh, subsidies? And would subsidies actually work? You know, that's a good question. Um, I, I don't remember. I think you guys actually, I think you, um, Joel, on your on your website published somebody recently from Cato Institute who said, look, um, Section 8 is the most effective way to give get people a f- flexible way to move places that covers a lot of their rent. And it's way, way smarter than building something that costs a fortune in, in California, $700,000 or some crazy number like that to build one affordable unit. City of Los Angeles is spending $700,000 on each of its new homeless units. I mean, come on, it's never going to work. So I, I really liked that. I can't remember who that was, Joel, who wrote Randall O'Toole. So Randall let me, O'Toole. yeah, let me push back a little bit. Because ultimately, once again, this is not complicated. It's supply and demand. I mean, at the end of the day, it's supply and demand. The reason corporations are buying single-family homes to rent them out is because of the supply and demand of rental housing. And so right now, the economics of it work, you know, if and when we get caught up on the supply of rental housing, they're going to dump them like hotcakes. And so they'll be flooding the market with all those homes they've been renting out because the, the right now... California's significant percentage of the renter population is paying 50% of their income for their rent. Not only is that not good for them as a family, it's not good for the economy. It's taking way too much money out of the economy. There are lots of micro distortions in the economy. I grew up in Big Bear Lake in Southern California, but this is true of every resort community across the country. All the second homes have been converted to Airbnb. There is no workforce housing in any small resort town because of that distortion. There are huge distortions in, you know, in Irvine, California, where the vast majority of new homes are sold to foreign buyers. That's a distortion. So there are micro distortions that are going on on the demand side all over the place. And it's and the money in the system is another distortion. But it's all driven because of the lack of supply. And what you just said, Jill, about $700,000 a house to build a house, that's the crux of the issue. We've got to bend the cost curve. And the vast majority of that $700,000 is not the cost of building the house. It's the cost of everything else, the process and the time and, and you, know, pre, you know, prevailing wage and, you know, all these other issues get hung on affordable housing. So I'll give you the number just for the Los Angeles, the, the Skag region, actually, six counties in Southern California, 1.3 million units. If you believe RENA, the Regional Housing Needs Assessment, and you can do your own math throughout the country because it's all going to be similar. Approximately 600,000 of those housing units need to be subsidized at some level. If it costs 500,000 a unit, that's $300 billion necessary. There's not enough money that government can't, they can't even make it up to meet that number just for this region, multiply that across the country. And right now there's a lot more money pouring into subsidy. The most effective subsidy uh, has been tax credits, much better than, and it's not section eight, it's a tenant-based voucher right now is what they call it. 
And so I, I think if we don't focus on the supply side of the equation, there's not enough money to print to be able to folk, to be able to subsidize the demand side. And yeah, we just have a quick, question, quick question for you, Steve, on the on the those costs. <clears throat> to what degree is the inflated land value um, a special contributing factor for California as opposed to other either governmental you know compliance costs or other kinds of costs? Yeah, I mean that's how you get to a million dollars a unit in Del Mar, you know, is because of the land and the process. Fifteen years of process obviously significantly affects it. And then the other big issue for land, though, is the down zoning that occurs in almost every single deal. There's been millions of units that have been negotiated away in order to get a project built because of neighborhood opposition or environmental opposition. So if you have a piece of property that you can put 100 units on, but you know you're going to get all the opposition. If you do 50 units, you get it through. That's what happens most of the time. So those are millions of units that will never be built because that land has been used, which further distorts the, the land value impact on those individual units. And so, I mean, it's basic math. You can look at land, obviously go closer to the coast, land's more expensive, you go further east, land's a little cheaper, you know, but that's just one of those factors that can be mitigated through density, you know, and through all of the rest of the process. So I'll just share with you one of the things we're doing now is if we go to a city and, and, you know, we we play the subsidy game. Joel's right. We find every single available dollar. We put it together. We have nine. We have a thousand units under construction right now. By the middle of next year, we'll have about fifteen hundred under construction. And so we play the game really well. But increasingly, we're going to cities to say you you identify where you want it built. You get the entitlements in place. You get all the environmental mitigations take care of and you get all the offsite mitigations. I mean, we are constantly having to pay to repair aging water, sewer, stormwater systems in city haven't for like a mile on either side of our project to get, the, you know, to get it moving forward. You can't put all those costs on producing housing. That's why you get to $700,000 a unit. So if we're not honest about what it takes to produce housing that people can afford, then we're just playing games. But isn't there, uh, you know, following up on what you said, and I'd like to get Jill on this as well, it seems to me part of the problem in California is where we could conceivably build affordable housing, both to buy and to rent, is in the interior, um, you know, where the costs are lower and there's usually more land. Is there um, any... The interior, uh, what do you mean the interior? Riverside, San Bernardino, where you are, the Central Valley. I mean, the, the Fresno, I mean... You know, you're never really going to be able to build affordable housing except at outrageous rates in Orange County and 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 West LA and places like that. It's just not gonna it's just not gonna happen. So are you talking market rate affordable? Uh, no, I'm talking about affordable. both market rate and at least having less of a subsidy. Um, I mean, it seems to me that we don't seem to be taking advantage of of the fact that California, by the way, is a very big state. It has lots of land. Now with telecommuting, people can work remotely more often, um, at least, you know, some part of the population. Um, and yet the state seems to be driving everybody to the exact place where prices are the highest and where probably the resistance is most sophisticated. Yeah, I, um, I would say, Joel, that's more an excuse than a reality. And and, and here's, here's why. If cities were incented to produce housing, versus Costco, there would be there'd be more housing produced. Than, I mean, we, we would eliminate the market distortion. 
But well, because, isn't of the fiscal, because of the fiscal structure of local government, cities right, view housing as a negative, retail as a positive, even though they watch retail shrink from 60% of the you know, economy down to 20 some percent of the economy, they're hanging on to that as the death nail of cities. And until we change where people are valued, the tax, the, the sales tax payer is more valued than the sales tax collector. And cities are rewarded based on where the payers are because cities are fiscal corporations. I mean, they're, they're, they're municipal corporations. They make fiscal decisions in their own best financial interest. They can't print money. All they can do is make it based on the decisions they make. So you can't blame a city for playing the cards they're dealt. But if they were to, I mean, we have so much underutilized land in our existing built communities that we can house an awful lot of people if cities were incented to make housing happen. I mean, just look at the strip retail along all the major highways in most of our suburban cities and urban cities all across this country, the wasted retail space, the parking lots that we have. I mean, all of that could be converted if a city wanted to. And, and could make that happen. So I, I, I don't think there's a lack of land anywhere. And I would even argue coastal cities can make decisions along those lines if they were so inclined. They could add housing so that the people that work there can live there and the people that grow up there can afford to be there. And so obviously there's limitations. Obviously that you know there, there is more cost as you go closer to the coast. But I think it's more of an excuse than a reality and it's based on bad policy. Jill? Um, with all due respect to Steve, <laughs> um, I, I don't think so. Um, I mean, I, I see some of what you say rings true, but I, I have to challenge a couple things. One thing I think is that there is a huge difference in regions in, law, in California. I just saw the Moody's analytics on this, and it shows that um, there's uh, enough housing in some of the major areas of California and not enough, way not enough in others. And the, the areas that came out in orange and red on the new um, Moody uh, uh, map show the Bay Area is a mess. The Bay Area is a mess, a desperate need for more housing. Um, Southern California is in good shape, except for uh, way out in the desert where there's a lot of uh, poverty and not enough housing and San Diego County. Uh, it's really an interesting map. And I, th I think it really echoes what I've seen happen in Los Angeles, which has tens of thousands of empty units. They're building empty units. You can drive through Hollywood now at night and see all the dark, empty buildings in Hollywood, the overbuilt market rate housing. It doesn't trickle down. That, that doesn't happen. They just leave it empty. I don't know how they pull it off. There's different ways, but they don't lower the rents. I, I do know somebody who got a place downtown L.A., and they got, yes, they got a rent re a reduction for the first month and then $20 off the rent from then on for their $2,800 studio. So it's, you know, it's a, it's a bunch of BS. Wow. Seattle, I'm from Seattle originally. And they said trickle down was working. And I, everybody I talked to in the legislature at one point, and I've covered housing off and on as a journalist since the nineties, early nineties. Anyway, Seattle had this reputation as proving that trickle down works and that if you upzone and jam a lot of people together, prices will go down. So yeah, they did go down in, um, I think it was Rent Cafe who had some of the best data, but anyway, Seattle did go down in price. $7 a month for one year, it dipped and then it went crazy again and you can't afford Seattle anymore. And so I, I wanna go to um, Vancouver on this issue. Vancouver, British Columbia, before anybody in California decided to upzone and tell the cities they were evil and so on, 
uh, it decided on its own to upzone. So they quadrupled their density allowed in Vancouver because it was going to create affordable housing. It did not do anything like that. And Patrick Condren, who's written a book uh, called Sick Cities, and he was a big time um, city official in Vancouver, but also a scholar uh, like you, uh, Joel, and you, Marshall. And uh, so this guy is a, a scholar and he steps in and, and, and fights really hard for upzoning. And it, it blows back in his face over many years. They tried it and tried it and they're still in the middle of it. So he came on this teleconference I was on about seven or eight months ago and said, don't get sucked into the upzoning. It just drives up the price of the land and everybody wants to build all those extra units and you don't get any savings because all the other stuff that Steve brings in still exists. You still have to pay for all the infrastructure and all the other stuff and you can't really strip it away or at least I don't know of anybody who's successfully found a way to strip that away. So I, I like Joel's idea that you look at the region's that are still affordable and see if you can do something in those areas. And the Inland Empire, which by the way, every architect I ever knew about seven or eight years ago dumped all over the horror of the Inland Empire. This awful, nasty place. I mean, dry, just because Steve lives there or not enough trees. <laughs> they just go on and on about how it sucked. And you know, every bit's all these losers who live out there. There's unbelievable elitism crap. <laughs> and now it's you know, it's obvious that they were full of it, you know, because the inland empire is the place. In fact, I believe Latino homeownership has out, outstripped white uh, homeownership in the inland uh, inland empire. I'm pretty sure it's it's just this. It's turning into this fantastic place for housing and for people to go. And I think it's I think it's because number one, they don't have a lot of upzoning. Uh, they got a lot of land still, and there's tons of the, the jobs have followed the people out there. The jobs went out there after so many people who used to be all commuters. So. I think it's really complicated. I think upzoning causes a huge amount of increase increase in the price of housing because Vancouver did it and it got so screwed up. It's and it's a, still a beautiful. Let, 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 Joe, let me make sure that we know what we're disagreeing about. So I never use the word upzoning. I never said that. And I'm the biggest advocate for suburban development. Maybe second only to. I don't even think I'm second to Joel. I think I'm ahead of him in advocating suburban development since I've been doing it all my life. But what I'm saying is the down zoning where you could build 100 and said you negotiate down to 50 has cost us millions of units across the regions, all the regions nationwide. And so that's, I think, is an unfortunate consequence of the political environment. Let, let's just make sure our, our audience understands what you just said. The, the move to 50 units from 100. Right. So if you're approved that already have the zoning in place for 100 units, but you go in, you have neighborhood opposition and they go, look, we won't oppose you if you only build 50 units. Developers cut that deal every single day. And so we lose that possibility. We have lost millions of units across our urban regions because of that down zoning that occurs. Number two, I've said there's a ton of wasted land in urban areas. And I'm not talking about at what density. For me, density should be only driven by the market. If the market supports it, then you build it. If the market doesn't support it, please don't build it at whatever density. And as you go further into suburbia, the market supports lower density. And so that, I mean, it's just a market-driven calculation on what density makes sense where. And But we should try and make sure that we're maximizing those market opportunities as we get into higher cost regions. But we should let the market determine. I'm never going to advocate for building something people can't 
you know, aren't going to rent or buy because obviously that makes no sense. And so I do think there's a whole bunch of opportunity to talk about product types and product mixes and, you know, different kinds of, you know, one of the things that I've stole from Joel over the year is you, we, we need to have communities that think in terms of life stages and a complete community is a community that can meet all the life stages. So you can be a, you know, what, what was the analogy, a digital animator body tattooed with a chest toupee living at six roommates in Venice, as long as you don't have a girlfriend and then once you have a serious girlfriend, as long as you don't want to get married and have kids. It's, I mean, so obviously life stage dictates a lot of choices. And the biggest single problem in California, one of the biggest, is the fact that when you look at how the Valley developed and Orange County developed, it was during a different environmental regime where businesses could grow and expand. And then they, they follow, they went out into the lower cost areas. The inland region has, to, has had to grow under a much more difficult right. environmental regime. And so if, if you're a business in the LA Orange County area, the logical thing is jump the border, go to Arizona and Nevada, not go to the Inland Empire. And if so, one of the things that we have to constantly focus on is build, moving the jobs to the housing more than we focus on. Everybody talks about moving the housing to the jobs. So, I mean, I just want to make sure that if we're going to disagree, we agree but, with what we're disagreeing. By the way, but, but the is, issue uh, of moving the jobs to the housing is involves an entirely different set of calculus for government policy, right? If you look at what both small business and larger businesses are saying and doing with moving capital projects out of state, with moving headquarters out of state. They're, they're looking at an overall business attractiveness climate that just isn't there in California anymore. So they're they're doing what you suggested. They're saying, let's, let's, let's move it to Arizona, let's move it to Texas, let's move it to Tennessee. Um, it seems to me that if people's livelihoods are going to be tied to the exodus of jobs, we're going to see an even greater exodus of of, uh, of people and uh, make it harder for housing. Yeah, what, what, that's, what, that's what, go ahead. No, I just want to ask both of you because you know we you know as we we you know we want to go another ten minutes or so. What changes could we make? What practical changes, particularly in taxes? Uh, Steve and I have been talking about the. I, I'll, I'll give you an example. If you're in Dallas, Fort Worth, and you build more houses, that whatever municipality you're in benefits from that. They, you know, they, they see that, you know, um, they, they don't, they depend more on property tax than they do on, on income tax. And so if, if I'm a, if I'm in, in Dallas and I, and I, someone wants to build more housing, well, I gain from that in California, I think it's very different. So how can we change the tax system so that there's more incentive to build housing of all kinds um, and and maybe what other changes you think would be necessary? Because I one of the things I want to say to our listeners who are not um, necessarily uh, living in California, what's happening in California is going to come for you. It's already come for you in higher prices and higher rents. And the policy dilemmas that we have now are going to be nationwide. So what sort of suggestions can we make both on the national and in, on the state level that could make the situation better? I don't. I don't have a good. Uh, I don't have a good idea for taxes. It's so complicated, and it's so hard to figure out where the bad guys are when it comes to taxes. I. I don't. I don't know what to say. I want to riff really quickly off of something that both Marshall and Steve said, though, and that is because we've driven out so many uh, businesses. There are lots of empty 
uh, commercial corridor areas and not empty, but underutilized and empty buildings and so on. And if you know a Peter Calthorpe uh, in the Bay Area who or originated the idea of, of um, transit-oriented communities about 20 years ago in his initial book about it. And I've talked to Peter Calthorpe at length, and he's created some interesting um, computerized uh, maps of LA County and the Bay Area showing the hundreds of thousands of uh, utilized, underutilized big buildings that could be turned into housing. Now, that doesn't deal with the loss of jobs, but um, as Steve touched on it earlier, there are all these commercial places that could be turned into housing, but nobody's doing a damn thing about it. And the legislature in California and other legislatures around the country have um, are sitting on bills. They don't, they don't let them go through. For example, in California, um, the Senate Majority Leader, um, uh, excuse me, um, um, Portantino, Senator Portantino has for last, the last three years, I believe, tried to get through a bill that says, hey, we're going we're gonna to help cities allow housing in commercial areas. We're going to take away the pain of losing the um, taxes on retail. And we're going to give them a little bit of money for about seven years so they don't hurt so bad from the loss of the retail and let, let, let housing be built there. And the legislature keeps killing Portantino's bill. They don't want to do it. So there's a lot of real small stuff like that going on. But on the tax issue, not I don't know. I don't know the answer. Steve might have a good one. So I have three suggestions. And this is why I will never be elected to anything in California <laughs> or anywhere else for that matter. So number one, number one, uh, the split roll tax that was on the ballot was splitting the wrong way. I mean, we should not touch the commercial side of the split roll tax. But the residential side of the effects of Prop 13 are unconscionable. So I'll use my mom. Let's just say she has a house that she's been living in since pre-Prop 13. And let's just say she pays $500 a year in her property taxes, probably less. The, new, the, the young family with children that bought the house next door is paying $700 a month in property taxes. Yeah. I mean, that is just such a distortion in the system. I think that's unconscionable. And we as a society need to be honest about it. If I say that in public, I'm hug, hung in effigy. But that distortion in the property tax is real. Number two is I think that we need to value people at the local level. And so whether it's, if I were a city, I'd say state, you take all the sales tax. That way we don't have to argue about where it gets collected. The state gets all the sales tax. And for me as a city, what I want is a commensurate amount of income tax, half based on where people live and half based on where people work. And then all of a sudden, cities are motivated to do jobs and housing. That's what they care about. The whole economy job, not just the retail portion, but the whole economy. They get to participate in the whole economy. If cities had done that 20 years ago, we wouldn't be looking at the number of cities that are going to be bankrupt in the next five years, 10 years. And it's uh, Steve, the third you, thing. You you work in a lot of communities outside of California. Um, are you seeing the same issues beginning to emerge? Yeah, absolutely. And and my third point is what place outside California do a better job of, which is tie taxes to the specific infrastructure need that exists. And so if you need transportation improvements, then you have the revenue associated with transportation. If you need water improvements, you have the revenue, stormwater, et cetera. And so in California, Rio and in other places, it gets all lumped together. But if we were, people are willing to pay as long as they know what their dollars are being used for. And then if it's critical infrastructure, then that is going to be something that is going to have more alignment between the revenue and the expenses. Now, let me just give you a cautionary tell about Texas though, 
is run the numbers. If you're a resident looking to, you know, you want to leave California high tax taxes and you go buy a house in Texas, there is no limitation to how much they can raise on your property taxes in any given year. And lots of people in Texas have been surprised by the sheer size of their property tax bills and the increases. And so, you know, that's one of the things to that, you know, I think we have to protect in California is we do protect the increase in the property tax, you know, on an ongoing basis. A quick question for both of you. This is a genuine question because I don't know, but I suspect the two of you may have done some research here. With the two infrastructure bills that are pending in Congress right now, is there any relief on any of these areas that Steve talked about in terms of being able to subsidize infrastructure without having to uh, hit up the uh, the developers for the money? I'm not a, I'm not a big fan of it. I, I can't find anything in it except the current uh, hot trends and which aren't working. It, to me, it looks like a doubling down of every mistake they've made so far. Yeah, it used to be the case, and don't quote me on the percentages, but you know, for critical infrastructure, such as trans, you know, the big highway systems, et cetera, the federal government was paying 80%, the locals 20%. That's been flipped for a long time where the feds are maybe contributing 20% and the state and locals are paying 80%. This might move that a little bit, you know, depending on roads and bridges and some of that critical infrastructure. But the number, the number that was already in the budget was 700 billion. And for the real infrastructure, they are going to one and a half. So they're they're doubling the amount of money. Is that going to make, are we going to really have a statistical difference feeling along that? Probably not. And so, and then the other infrastructure bill, yeah, I, I don't know. The The only area that may help is in the digital divide, you know, the whole broadband arena, because there can be money for, you know, especially those regions where the market's never going to provide internet access at speeds that are, you know, necessary for telehealth and teleeducation. So there might be a little help in that space. Um, the biggest gap, you know, right now, I think that we all need to be really thoughtful about is water and, you know, how that plays out. There's no lack of water in California. There's no lack of water anywhere. It's purely a political and economic decision about how we treat our water. And so at the end of the day, you know, hopefully we can make rational decisions about water and not try and use limiting water as another way to chase people out of certain areas. I'm, I'm very concerned also, and I agree with everything you just said, Steve, but I'm also worried about the tribal approach right now in housing, which I saw in uh, the president's ideas. And that is that it's a, it's a progressive view that, um, that, that upzoning will, will attack the racists of the, of the United States and force the racists to live with near poor people and that, that people who own a home are racist in, inherently. And it just goes on and on. And I think people are really getting sick of it, but it's making people feel guilty. And of course, that's going to make uh, have them have a negative reaction as, as opposed to a helpful reaction. And it's just the wrong way to go. And one of the great ironies and, um, you know, uh, is that actually in the work that we're doing, um, not just in California, but around the country, the suburbs are, are integrating at an incredible rate. I mean, this idea that, you know, it's like some of these academics are, have, like, they stopped thinking after 1970. Well, and here, just to, and you mentioned, you know, the, the Jennifer Hernandez, and this, is, I, I find this unconscionable that if you believe we had a period of time of redlining, which is documented true, 
where right. people, because of race or religion, were not allowed to own homes in certain neighborhoods or have access to certain financial instruments in order to buy homes, which is true. Then you have to think about, okay, that, that was bad. And those families that didn't have the opportunity to own a home ownership did not have the opportunity to participate in the appreciation of equity and everything that came from that. Then you have to ask yourself, what are we doing today to further institutionalize the consequences of redlining? Well, the primary thing we're doing is making it harder and harder for people to own homes and especially homes in neighborhoods where they want to be, et cetera, et cetera. And so, you know, the, 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 you know, I, I just do not understand how we can in good conscience think that more subsidized housing is the solution to the consequences of redlining as opposed to more home ownership opportunities being the solution to the consequences of redlining. Because today that's the biggest obstacle. And like you said, those families that have the opportunity to buy homes, they're the ones that are going to be able to continue to participate in the growth of the economy and regions where they end as a whole. And so well, I, I, I agree with you, but you've got you've got a lot of very important people at the very highest levels saying that things that Joel writes a lot about, which are the suburbs, are bad and we can't be having this sprawl. And then they think we are all not driving our cars because we live in crowded areas, but we do. And we never ended up using the transit because it's a pain in the butt. And it just goes around and around and around on that same problem. And they never. Yeah, I, just, I blame Joel and Marshall for not being effective enough in their communications. <laughs> we, we totally take responsibility for that. <laughs> and, you know, the, the, the other thing that's kind of funny about all of this is the calculus of uh, vehicles, mile, vehicle miles traveled and the whole notion of, you know, we shouldn't be using our cars. Well, is is obviously based on a pre-COVID ethic, right? Today we have a world. I, I think I I maybe put five thousand miles on my car last year, I, and a, on, that's like a wild extrapolation. It's probably less than that because I don't need to. I can, you know, I don't. I work from home uh, except for when I teach face to face at school. Uh, my son, who is an executive at a at a Fortune, you know, one hundred uh, corporation in the East Coast has been told by his organization, hey, keep keep working from home. You don't have to do anything. So what are, what is the natural um, impact of that? People actually are thinking even more about moving to Exerbia because they're going, hey, if I can get a Wi-Fi connection to your earlier point, you know, or I can get a, a broadband connection rather, um, why not take advantage of uh, of that uh, that bucolic setting? So I think we need to kind of dial back in uh, a new set of work habits in order to be able to reconfigure what our notions are about policy. And you can bet that no legislature in the United States has figured this out yet. They are years behind on this discussion and California leads the way on being years behind. But but I just they, they aren't talking about this. They don't. It, it's been drummed into us forever. Sprawl is bad. Suburbs are bad. Uh, some of the legislators in California call the suburbs the soulless suburbs. They are a place where people have no soul. And I'm like, you guys, it's like 57% Latino homeownership in the Inland Empire. What are you talking about? Because they, they want it to be about white people. It's really, it's very annoying and stupid. Yep. Well, stupidity and annoyance, <laughs> I have a sneaking suspicion, may be with us for a while. <laughs> But I, and um, uh, hopefully, hopefully the comments that that uh, you contributed, both of you today, uh, can make an impact on getting our policymakers to look at things differently. So I'd like to thank 
you, Jill, and you, Steve, for joining us on the Feudal Future podcast. Thank you. Our pleasure. Thank Thanks you. for coming.